So hello, this is the Octurn Fox. Um, this is the second episode of our podcast. Um, this one is called Limitations of a Modern Magician. Uh, in this episode, basically, we're going to be talking about the idea of how to solve problems within the realm of magic. And we're going to be talking about the importance of devotion during magic. What, um, what, is the, what is the advantages of devoting yourself to a certain deity um, or in a spirit? Um, and what are the possible outcomes? Uh, as far as my experience says and well, that's it really we're going to be talking about problem solving and devotion um, a very important thing to here to note is that there was a problem with the recording and um, so the first part of the episode it feels like I'm jumping in right away and I am sort of because there's a part of it that was just deleted unintentionally um, so this is essentially was the introduction and the first topic of speaking is about is freedom really free and uh, so I hope you enjoy this one uh, please remember to look for our Facebook page the Octor and Fox uh, or find us on Instagram as the Octor and Fox um, or simply go to our Facebook page and book an appointment or consultation or go to Amazon.de and there you, you will find our new book 30 days of confidence or our newish book because it's been there for a bit on the market um, I hope you enjoy it and I hope you enjoy the consultations and I hope you enjoy this episode from meditations in cows <laughs> There's always um, a tension, there's this tension between uh, constraints and freedom. There's always a freedom within a certain boundary. You're not free to do everything that you want. I mean, you are, but there are consequences that not everybody can handle every consequence of their actions, you know. And thus, your freedom, sort of, though it is a right, yet at the same time is a luxury. It's the same concept behind, behind the idea of sovereignty as well. Is the idea that sovereignty and freedom are luxuries. Though they are your right since you are born, but somehow there is a paradox that seems to be opening its, 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 its doorways here, which is the idea that you are free as much as you can afford to be free. Um... And a lot of us try to avoid this concept by uh, by demonizing money, by forgetting the fact that um, for you to be to have the freedom to wear whatever you want to wear, you have to be able to afford it. Uh, for you to have the freedom to eat whatever you have to eat, you have to be able to not only afford it but know how to how to get it, how to cook it, where to enjoy it, and and all of these things. There is always there is always freedom within some certain limitations. There's always a freedom between the circle has to have boundaries for it to be a circle. Otherwise, it's limitless and boundless, which is beautiful. But at the same time, you no longer exist within if there is no if there is no boundary. You know there must be a bit of a boundary, 
and for the freedom to interact with it. And, and this is the first. So what does it mean about think of freedom? And, and I think a big part of it is the idea to understand that if you have a certain, if you want to attain a certain freedom from something to attain something else, you have to understand there is a pathway that you have to walk on that will provide you with certain freedoms, yet at the same time will constrain you from other places. I haven't seen and don't consider to see, and I don't think I'll ever see a path, whatever it is, be it spiritual or or of whatever temperament, it helps discipline the person into be, into them their their own self becoming and overcoming. That does not provide a certain sort of constriction you know that 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 in order for you to get this you'll do that you know it's i think it's it's part of the the karma of living in a three-dimensional uh in the 3d physical place basically and how does this help us magically it helps us a lot actually for example if and this is something that has been taught over and over again if you want to achieve let's say for example Let's say you want to be a rich person, you know, instead of saying I want to be a rich person, think within the constraints of uh, I want to have, let's say, a better income in the month. And you by saying I want to have a better income in the month, you can you can shoot at that. You can say I want to work magic so I can have better income in the month. And then eventually you'll end up shooting for a job or eventually eventually shooting for an opportunity that you can make money out of and or it doesn't only have to be with money it can be with sex too it could be with the idea of wanting to have sex and and the idea of not wanting to be constrained to one relationship or wanting to be constrained to one ordeal of life so that you can get what you want you want a vaster more broader way of receiving what you want and essentially, all of these things, when we widen our horizon up, the more we widen a horizon, the more we have a responsibility to maintain the boundary around it and understand that these boundaries are very flexible. They're, they have sort of a life of their own. So basically, they can transform into something else or uh, that, that, that form of transformation can be progressive and can be regressive. You don't have full control over it. You can influence it every now and then. But at the end of the day, there is always a mutation that's kind of sort of out of your hand here or there somewhere. Otherwise, life would be fucking boring if there is not a little bit of anxiety and excitement here and there. Um, and actually, it's uh, it makes life much more functional when there is this mutation that is out of hand because you get to, this is where opportunity arises. Opportunity most of the time does not arise by you planning out the opportunity, then hence it's not an opportunity, it's more of a, uh, a constructed advantage or of some sort, but it's not an opportunity. I think a big part of having an opportunity is the idea of it being unexpected and you being there somehow prepared, you know. Um, the next thing that I want to talk about is quantification of the unknown can help us figure out its zone of effect. Now, what do I mean by this? I was talking with a friend of mine and if you are listening to this, hey man, uh, thank you for everything. Um, 
the idea he, he he said we were talking about the idea of how we can quantify or qualify or feel the quality of the unknown you know and um, he said you cannot touch the unknown and i responded that no you can there are ways to touch the unknown but there are limits to where you can touch the unknown to figure it out um you cannot uh, fully and it's again it, it's it's a degree it's a degree of 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 sensitivity it's not absolute I cannot feel it or I cannot see it. No, there are degrees to what you can see and what you can touch and, and what you can feel out of a circumstance. And this can help us magically on so many levels because divination at the end of the day, it points. It's like it's the finger that points. It's not telling you the situation. It points at the situation and then you end up seeing the situation or seeing what you can see out of the situation at that moment. The issue that happens most of the time is that when we try to dig around circumstances, when once we do a divination of some sort or we do a tarot reading of some sort, and, and, and there's a part of the reading that you cannot see, um, ego can come creep in and tell you, oh, you're not good enough, so you have to practice more to see this zone. And you end up, you end up either killing yourself with worry or killing yourself with anxiety. And all that you do is that you end up, uh, my therapist calls it digging. Uh, again, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. Um, she calls it digging. Is when when you start digging in the walls, and 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 you have a wall that, and sometimes we end up digging in walls of people that we end up doing readings, and these readings pick up on people's stuff. And of course, once p the reading picks up on that, it's like it's like a radio signal. Once the reading picks up on that, you already know the information, and it is what it is. You cannot block information. Information. No matter how much you can block information, information will pass one way or another. Um, and I think the best way of dealing with this for me up until this moment is to kind of like, okay, cool, thank you for the information, now moving on. And and it takes a bit of, it's not really, we don't end up dealing with blocking the information, we end up dealing with how we respond to the information. Um, and, and kind of understanding the limit of the story. What I mean by that is that every one of us has their own story. There is, there is, there is, you have your own complexity and you have your own story. And there is so much that is involved within your story and so little involved with your story as well. What do I mean by that is that you have yourself. And let's say, for example, you have your lover. This lover of yours, for example, she or he has stories around them. These stories around them is not your stories. But these stories add to the complexity of the story that you have with that lover. Um, they add complexity to the story. They add possibilities of intrigue. They add possibilities of excitement. They add possibilities of sorrow. They add possibilities of limitation. Um, these stories are not deletable. They're not. It's not like you can go to the story and delete it. Of course, if we're going to talk about false memory uh, therapy... I don't know if it's allowed yet or not, but I think in neurolinguistic programming they apply it sometimes where you where you give someone a false memory and and sort of uh, you implant a false memory in their head with some false belief about themselves so they can uh, drop uh, some bad habit or something like that. And I think they tried it to some extent with some studies actually and it worked. Uh, but it works with like diets with with not not I didn't I don't remember reading uh, trying with cigarette smoking or addictions, but I remember they tried it with like eating unhealthy foods and they kind of convinced some people not to eat healthy unhealthy foods, uh, by doing so. 
so the qualification so so the idea of the quantifying of the unknown is is that you are limited to some parts of your story be and, and limited to other people's stories as well so once you quantify the idea that this story for example is not yours that that the person is telling you is telling you their story but it's not yours to kind of try to play with or try to mess with um uh, you a retain a sense of boundary and you retain a sense of sovereignty for the other that it's not your place to play with the story of course when we do magic this is where the magic happens it's it's on the story level you have you have so many levels that magic works from you have the first one of course it's not really this is just how i name it how i label it how i imagine it it's not necessarily this way but this is how i see it so you have so essentially you have the story level the story level essentially is about the idea of how how can you talk with people um what can you say to that person what can't you say to that person um what can you open up to that person about what can they open up to you about um and this 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 constraint of the story try can help you touch a bit of the unknown whether it be about a person whether it be about circumstance whether it be about whatever even the tarot itself is a story how the fool goes around in a full journey or a full circle to come back to himself uh, renewed yet still a fool <laughs> I was like oh i understood a bit but still i did not understand anything uh, or as much as i thought i can out of all this journey like when a cycle ends so the idea of quantifying the unknown yes you can quantify the unknown but at the end of the day you have to understand that a you can be accurate it's very important to understand that you can be accurate with your sensation but not necessarily accurate with your intellect and even with your sensation you can be a bit inaccurate specifically if you have blocks or traumas around certain information that you're receiving over the ether a lot of the times we end up wanting to receive things uh, because f- because at the end of the day when we receive things we first receive them on as as light then as information then as material it's we don't we don't receive it as material we receive it first as light as energy and this energy kind of melts with our own energy and produces information this information then solidifies further into manifestation and this solidified manifestation in the 3d realm really depends on the interaction of the light with the material within you you know or the light with the information within you and how it manifests in your internal material structure into your external material structure and this is very important to understand because a lot of people presume that they're not good enough when they don't manifest what they want and again it takes me to the idea of the how much limitation do we have with our readings if um if you are if you and I'll have to go and touch on that quickly if you have a certain circumstance where you're like I can't read all of the circumstance don't try to read all of the circumstance perhaps you're you're supposed to uh actually go out there and see what the circumstance is about sometimes you can so a lot of magic happens outside of the circle much more inside of the circle a lot of magic actually happens outside of the ritual that you performed um 
there's a lot of times that we do magic where we are actually the offering of the magical ritual is not really um, the cigarette or or the or the glass of wine. It's actually more about going out in the world and doing what needs to be done to make the work to happen. It's of no cons. It is consequential, of course, to have offerings and consequential to make things work. But at the end of the day, if you are not at a certain doing doing what you felt that you should do during the ritual outside of the ritual, um, it can create some blocks and obstacles. Um, and sadly, though, there is no such thing as um, a guarantee that you will always listen or hear um, what you need to do outside of the ritual through the ritual. And this is part of the training. This is a part, big part of magical training is to be able to listen during rituals. And somehow the listening during rituals and hearing what is being said to you or transmitted to you or the information that you received after the light you received, this requires a certain, as I said, training and meditation and all that. But it wouldn't, you wouldn't advance, in my opinion, I personally did not advance into this without actually accompanying physical activities with it. An interesting way for me to work with this um, is, is washing the dishes after doing a magical ritual. The idea here is, I'm not really a fan of washing the dishes, but I have to do it. So the idea when I start washing the dishes after um, after doing a ritual, A, I have to kind of like be grounded a bit to do it. So it kind of like forces me in my body more after the ritual. And again, it's an activity that I can let go so I can hear what is being told. If there's something I needed to hear in the ritual and I didn't hear inside of the ritual, I can hear it outside of the ritual while I'm cleaning up the dishes or another one is cleaning up the apartment. Do something that you're not necessarily interested in. Um, but you have, but you, you gotta do, you know, it's like, a, you, you gotta fucking clean up your house. Otherwise, you, even your magic would be, would be not healthy, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's just the idea of, again, you can touch the unknown as much as you're willing to touch it and as much as it opens itself to you up, you know? And the more you prod, and last top, last part of this this point is, the more you try to prod around and fuck about what you is not opened for you, the more you're gonna hurt yourself, even if you already heard it. Because sometimes we end up hearing something in on the ether, and we do not, we kind of do not understand it. Like the click happens, um, if the click happens during ritual, and then. And you, you can't, you, you didn't hear it at that moment because whatever, you're not prepared, you're, you don't have the necessary, um, the necessary offering that will be the conduit, the, the necessary offering that will be the conduit of the message to be received by your body. Um, a, a lot of things can come into play during rituals where you cannot hear the ritual. Um, and the answer to this is not to break your head about it. The answer to this is to be patient, A, with yourself, and B, with the fact that uh, it takes time for our system to adapt to new systems of thought or work or belief. It's not just, um, it's not just reading a book when it comes to magic. There are, uh, Andrew Allen Chumbly always makes it very clear in his writings uh, when he says, I am the, the book. That means that you are the book, you are the man, like, 
whatever book you're gonna read in magic it has no, it's nothing compared to your body your body is the real book of magic and in the sense of that magic writes on it like let's say your book your body is not an empty is not empty pages but they are pages that are willing to have things written on them and uh, from you from your magic from your spiritual practice from your spirits that surround you from the people surround you everyone participates in writing in your own book and it's so much you can prevent from happening and so much you can build a boundary around but essentially boundaries arise without us even building them this is something very important to understand that no matter how much boundary you're going to build up around yourself um the end of the day boundaries arise and boundaries some of them are limitations and some of them are necessarily necessary form of self-protection and it's like what the ego does the ego just builds up boundaries to protect us and these boundaries that end up protecting us are exactly what causes us to kind of go again going back into the main point that i'm talking about is quantifying quantifying the unknown is that our ego blocks a lot of the unknown away as a form of self-protection because either it hasn't dealt with it before it has or it has dealt with it already and either wants you to go inside without thinking too much about it because it doesn't want you to get anxious by knowing this information or it's just you know it it, it does what a good protective person who doesn't know so much or has known so much or has known too much and this is very important to understand and one last point in this topic is the idea of knowing too much Knowing too much is not a good thing. Um, a lot of people presume that uh, magical practice or spiritual practice is about knowing. Mm, it is about knowing and consequential unknowing. That is, um, of course, you don't want to unknow things that you know that are helping you. But at the same time, you have to be willing to unknow things that are of no longer use to you. So... So that is the point about quantifying the unknown. And I think the big point of quantifying the unknown here is the ability to allow yourself to unknow things. So you get to know new things. The next thing is, and I think this is the core point of forgiveness, is that you know something about someone and, and then evidently you know that you cannot... Uh, like you know something about someone and then you eventually unknow it through forgetfulness um the next thing is doing things slowly can help you do them in a much faster pace than you think <laughs> the more i hustle myself the more i end up finding out that i am actually doing things in a way that'll make me rinse and repeat more often than getting them done once in a clean cut uh, this I learned in Iaido actually from my teacher in Iaido back in the day. If you're listening to this, again, thank you so much. Um, my teacher in Iaido, basically, he was... Um, I always wanted to learn how to have a clean cut. And it was preposterous that you want to have a clean cut when you just started learning Iaido for the first one week. You know, the first week and I wanted to hear the, the buku. Because the first week you don't get a you get a, don't get a you don't get a you don't get a sword you get a buku buku is the wooden staff that looks like a sword or the wooden sword basically you get a buku first and then you get a sword later on. So the first thing is I was like I want to hear the buku and the buku has a beautiful sound when it's done right like there's when you move the sword in a right way it has a specific sound and it kind of 
even the energy you feel the energy being released in a certain in a certain pattern that is very healthy if you do it you do a bad cut you will feel a bad cut you know um so with the buku and of course you do this on air you don't do it on other people you know so nobody gets the imagination that oh it feels good to hit others with a buku i'm such a psychopath no of course not but it's just the idea that you end up having the buku and the buku falls and when it falls in the right direction in a perpendicular kind of way and how you hold the buku 45 degrees and there's there's rules to that of that conduct and once you know them, you have to unknow them so you can actually move. Because if you try to say, I'll do it this way, but I'll do it this way, it doesn't work. And somehow it works better when you watch someone doing it and then you do it after them without thinking how I did it or how you did it. And you keep on rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat and then it, it happens sort of. But the idea from this, what I'm saying, is the idea of doing things slowly. Now, if, if I did things slowly... Later on, I got just the, the smell of the right sound of the of the sword, honestly. I didn't have enough time. I only trained for like uh, almost a year in Iaido, but I didn't have enough time to train fully um, because I had to move out from the city that I was learning Iaido in. And it was, I really wish I would continue learning Iaido at some point. Anyway, so the, when I learned the uh, the thing well it, it when i did it fast i couldn't get the sound right because a i was too much in my head i think speed is 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 a function of the brain more than it is the function of the body i think the body goes fast because of the head but it doesn't go fast on its own i think i feel like i feel like it has there has to be a command from the head to allow the speed and i'm talking in energetic levels i'm not talking about how the brain has functions over the body and all that jazz no i'm just talking about the center of forms of energy you have the center of speed i presume it's in the head more than anything else in the head in the body that's why when we end up doing a lot of things so quick or become too mercurial about things i feel we're using our head more than we're using on our body and our body is just complaining complying to our head uh, on the other hand, if we end up using our body more, we become actually more grounded, more solid, more fluid because there's a lot of water in the lower part of the body. So we end up like really taking things slow. It's not as airy. It becomes more air, water, fire rather than air comes as a product of it rather than the opposite. Because when we use air to quicken things, it kind of makes us... Um, it kind of makes us fragmented and scattered. And this fragmentation... As this fragmentation and the scattering kind of leads us to this place where we're um, where we're either low in energy so we can no longer focus on making things happen or we're too much scattered that we cannot even move our bodies uh, in accordance with the speed of our minds and a lot of people would want to slow down their brains um, before they so but that is not so helpful because the more we try to slow our heads we kind of getting out of our nature a lot of people who are really fast in the head, um, they have attained this because of a lifetime of experience of having to do things quick. Um, and that's not a problem. However, the problem is when you try to make your body as fast as your brain. And that makes a lot of things completely wrong and i think in the age of information that we live in while while you don't really you don't have to wait for so long until you receive a book um or you can just kindle it 
uh, and then you'll find it. By the way, speaking of Kindle, you should definitely check out my new book, uh, 30 Days of Confidence. You can find it on Amazon. Um, uh, I think you can find it on Amazon. Just write down 30 Days of Confidence by Idrisa Sanusi. Read that shit. Support us and uh, have a good time reading it. But anyway, going back to topic, is the idea that when you do things really slow and you allow your brain to to be fast as much as it wants to because that's the natural thing you know light travels fast electricity travels fast and you just allow your body the stability of sitting down allowing the thunder and and the lightning and the storms that are happening in your brain to do whatever they want to do on their own you don't touch them you don't want to put your finger in the fucking fan that will just only obliterate it you let the fan go as fast as it needs to but your body can go as slow as it needs to be. And it will take time, I think, to allow the system to kind of um, go through this movement that, that, ah, it's very fast up there, but down there is really slow. And you will realize when you get into that state of mind or that state of movement, because that's not a state of, well, it is a state of mind, but it's a state of movement mainly. When you get to that state of movement of, slow movement slow flow you realize that you will kind of get on another click in your magic which is which is the click of surrounding energy we presume that surrounding energy of the environment is as fast as the cars that are surrounding us or as fast as the people that are surrounding us or as fast as how our brains are, but the truth of the matter is, it's as much, much, has different flow. Whether it's slower or faster depends on your own speed, but the flow of the environment surrounding us, or the circumstance surrounding us on an energetic level, it's, um, you have to click into it, and that click comes when you don't slow your brain down, but you allow yourself, you allow your body to move with the energy of the surrounding. And once you start moving your energy, your body with the energy of the surrounding during ritual, or and you you start to take that slowly into your waking life, into your physical life. And when you do that in your physical life, then you start to see opportunities arise. Not that you see the opportunities arise, but you get to understand what is a good opportunity and what is not a good opportunity. What's good for you? What's not good for you? Because you start to be more connected to your own flow. And to understand how different it is from the external flow. And it will help you as well get to learn other people. To see how how they flow with things as well. Because you could see a lot of people who are just walking around in circles around you every day. And they just like, you know, they are very fast. Too fast for their surrounding. And the fact that and possibly they are just too fast and they need to slow down and accept that their mind is very fast and once they accept that their mind is very fast and their body is slow to comprehend this difference a lot of information can actually start to sink in rather than it being fragmented all over the place so this is for the third point the fourth point is distraction in times of frustration is a gold mine of perspective We'll talk about this after the break. (laughs) 
So hello, this is the Octor and Fox, and this is part two of uh, this month's episode of Meditations in Cows. And uh, this episode is called uh, Magic and Problem Solving, or more or less uh, the limitations of a modern magician. And this uh, part we're going to start talking about first the distractions. And then we'll go on a different segment that what we started talking about in the first uh, meditation or part of the episode. Um, the, the, the last part of the episode I spoke about the idea of distraction and how important it is for the, for the magician to embrace distractions rather than to try to avoid them or try to kind of leash them to his will or her will. We wish most of the time that what we desire or we uh, do magic for a while ago to come in the way that we want it to. I think this is the core uh, of most of the lust of result is that we want the magic to happen in a certain way or our desire to manifest in a certain way, in a very specific way. And magic does not most of the time obey what if at all obey our vision of something happening it manifests in its own way and most of the time it manifests in in a sort of in accordance with your own unconscious stories um we all know uh, the possibility of manifesting a job or or a lover all of these things they don't come out of the blue they come out of your deep core desires most of the time magic is a form of self-discovery if we are willing to not really depress ourselves in the in the manifestations so essentially what i'm talking about here regarding previous like if you've done a lot of magic in the past and you wonder that why this magic did not manifest well, sometimes in the magic that you're performing right now, the magic of the past manifests. So let's say, for example, you are, um, and, and I think, um, let's say, for example, you're in a business venture, okay, and you really want to devote your time to this business, but you've done work a while ago to get a job. And then suddenly this job comes out while you're in the this business venture and you don't want to be distracted. But you can't turn down this this distraction because it is your will that actually pointed this out. It's it's like what they call the fruition of karma uh, or the fruition of a result. The fruition of a result does not come out of the blue. It is just a ripening that happens because of the certain circumstances that align together that allow this chapter of the story to unfold, basically. Um, so if it's if it's if it's a distraction of that kind. Don't resist it. Allow yourself to meditate on it. Allow yourself to um, go discover what this distraction is about. It happens as well with lovers and it it, it happens with, with most of everything that we kind of cast for in the three-dimensional world that we live in. The... This is for the distractions, basically. Another thing that I noticed about distractions is that distractions, the distractions in general, they kind of help us in making decisions. A lot of times when we're when we're stuck, 
we we can distract ourselves or we can go with a distraction let's say uh hanging out with a friend or or hanging out with with anyone basically that has nothing to do with the desire that you intended to manifest can give you space to to kind of forget about the desire and this is another importance of distraction is to kind of detach from the main subject of intention you know so it gives it a bit of broader space to manifest or to at least for you to understand why is it not there at that time um so so this is another form i've read regarding distractions as well there's a book called ritual chaos ritual and i don't think it's available anymore or in print anymore it's like literally there are some rare prints and i was one of the lucky people to have read it when it was still in print back in 2010 i think or 2011 um and it was it was a it was an definitely an eye opener for me um the language was not so easy for me to understand so i don't think it's a big book for beginners because there's a lot of work like that you should like regarding circuits brain circuits and circuit models and all that kind of jazz that you would have wanted to discover first um so you can understand what he is talking about but the practices are quite in your face like he tells you what to exactly do to experience things and he really uses a lot of the idea of of distraction in meditation rather than for example focusing in meditation on an object of focus what he suggests is that you look at the object of focus without focus and focus your attention in your imagination on an object like imagine an object of course a different object than the one that you're focusing on um you could for the chaos magic practitioner he could use he or she could use um they can um a sigil of their intention in the background so they're let's say they're fo- they're they're watching a white wall so that they can relax their brain yet at the same time they're focusing their intention uh they're focusing a sigil and this is can be very useful in more complicated rituals along the path because there's sometimes when you're doing some rituals the energies that surround you that you have to deal with offer a certain complexity that requires you to learn how to to switch on and off between distractions while you're sitting down in meditation it's like for example um watching a sigil and then completely letting go of it and focusing on something else so you can charge that sigil with energy while you're focusing on something else and this is more of like a a machine gun sigil activation sort of that sometimes happens in in rituals um and and of course uh, the more you practice the idea of of using distraction on on simple not simple there's no such a thing as a simple work of magic all magic is complicated even if it's in the process it seems so simple in the manifestation and how you have to deal with it and the lessons it teaches you and the lessons you learn i've yet to see a work of magic that does not require work before and during and after the ritual uh and thus distractions are very important because they kind of help you relax uh from a lot of byproducts of practicing magic um these byproducts can be for example and all of these byproducts actually um can be obstructions 
and this is the thing magic can defeat itself if the magician is not there it's independent of the magician at some points if there's another magician working on it <laughs> but uh, in general ma your magic always seems to magic in general seems to require a sense of attentiveness um, so yeah so essentially when we we, we kind of like so the obstruction the obstructions that we face during practicing magic and are byproducts of magic in itself. The first one is um, the idea of um, restlessness. The first one is restlessness. Restlessness in the sense, uh, restlessness in the restlessness in the sense is as how how is it a byproduct of magic? Um, the more you practice something, the more you're gonna get restless around it. Especially if you're someone who lives around their temple close to their to where they practice magic and they're surrounded by their symbols all the time, uh, it can get restless. And the reason being is that you will always be reminded that you have to do this ritual for that person or that ritual for that target or that ritual for that goal or that offering for that god or that offering for that deity. And it can be a bit overwhelming and thus the importance of when the distraction comes you enjoy it um as long as you have a schedule that reminds you if you need to do a certain offering on something like that or you have some ordeals to keep or whatever not ordeal sorry or, or um some word to keep um what else so that's regarding distractions another thing that another byproduct of magic is I wouldn't, I would say ill will. Ill will can be a byproduct of magic. Though magic can help us become really good human beings, but it will show us the amount of ill will that we have inherited and we have created in this lifetime. Magic is in itself can even give us, a, a, help us create even more ill will. Um, and the reason being is that you as a magician will find yourself sometimes not the most successful, um, not the most useful human being. So it, it, it really magical adventures can take you in a toll. And one of the what could be problematic at times is if you don't do a regular cleanup of your aura or your or a regular kind of devotion to your deity of devotion, what would happen is that you would assume that uh, this is who you are. This ill will is who you are. Uh, or this, um, this desire to hurt people is who you are. Or the cycles of pain that you've been through, this is who you are. And this identification with with the with the armor or with the with the pain or with the skin that has, of course you feel it. Your body is your armor. You, of course you feel your armor's pain, and of course it's your pain in a way too. But you're not it. And in magic, somehow when we jump into the realm of the the, the when we jump into the ether, we are dealing with all the pain and the suffering not just about of us we're dealing with all of the energetic resonances that surround us 
So it, it doesn't matter how much you clean up, how much you protect your aura, you are you cannot desensitize yourself no matter how much magic you do, no matter how much people you're going to fuck, no matter how much people you're going to get to know on a close level, you can, no matter how much pain you go through, you will never desensitize yourself. So in general, what happens when we practice magic is all of these things get revealed to us. And this is when we get to understand that it's either we fully identify with what's happening and we can we we end up creating the ill will necessary to move on because for us to identify ourselves as an enemy to a person, let's say for example someone has caused this hurt, we will identify ourselves as an enemy to that person. And once we identify ourselves as an enemy to that person, we are compelled by the origin of say or by the order of safety within our bodies that we attack that person first before that person attacks us. And the more we identify with the cycle, the more we develop the sense of undistinguishable um, sense of fragility that we hope to create in the other, who we perceive as an enemy. And who we perceive as an enemy is not so conscious. We have inherited so many beliefs about people and how they comply to our will that a lot of us, including myself sometimes, uh, if you're not doing what I want you to do, I might consider you as an enemy sometimes. And that's not a good thing. And I think a lot of people, I'm not so sure if a lot of people suffer from this, but I personally have met the suffering in my life for a while. And this this kind of way of defining the other who did not go with an order that we want to play on them as an enemy. Imagine how many people in this state of mind we create as enemies. Imagine how many uh, the anxiety, the sheer anxiety and the fear of living that this this burdens our shoulders with that we can't barely look at the other person without assuming enmity because we just built up a lot of um aggression towards the other because simply not everybody has to comply to your will and essentially this way of dealing with things when it's revealed to us in magic we first the first thing that we might end up doing is assuming that this anonymity and this vulgarity and this this tyranny is is a friend of ours or a, a, a hopefully an enemy of ours so we can have all of this pain released and the the psychology of creating enemies goes beyond that it's it's a really a planned out event to create an enemy out of a friend without us noticing and the thing is the plan is already set like if you if you're if you already have inherited these waves of thinking um we, you on on the unconscious level might end up actually creating all a lot of enemies in your life without even knowing him in the first place because you already kind of did an algorithm that this person uh he looks like this he feels like this he does that he does this uh um if i can't get him to do what i want him to do he will end up doing things that might harm me in one way or another and this way of thinking, I think it's uh, there's no need to shame myself for it or or anything, but I think a lot of people go through it, and I think it's not the, the most terrible thing because you're not in control of these 
um, this ceaseless play of, of beliefs and, and thoughts, formations. And this infection did not happen over one lifetime and it did not happen over one generation. Um, so, so, so this is another byproduct of magic is that it will reveal these things to you. Now, magic will give you the power to use these beliefs temporarily to your benefit uh, if you choose to or uh, and then it kind of ricochets in your face uh, so like because because in our heads we already created the stories our beliefs helps us create the stories where we have already won a battle and got defeated by another and got punished by another just to keep the balance safe all of these these games that we create in our in our mind in our conscious have already been written a long time ago by us so magic, as much as it reveals this, it gives us a choice. It gives us a choice where we basically kind of have the opportunity to say no when the time is right. Um, so regarding the next thing that i want to talk about regarding another byproduct of magic and at the same time an obstruction in the path is intensity of sensual desire i haven't seen i've seen this with myself i've seen this with a lot of practitioners who don't get laid often um i've seen it with practitioners who um who stumble around having a lot of problems with with socializing themselves with the other uh i seen it with people who cannot drop their their intention just for a bit or allow themselves some distractions to enjoy their life and their sense of being and it's it's i've been there to all those people who who are there and are going through this, I've been there, I go through it sometimes, and I know your pain. Um, it's a very deep pain, and it's a ridiculous pain sometimes, honestly, but it's very important to understand that another thing that magic will do is it will open ways to you to enjoy your sexuality and your sensuality. It will. But what happens is that it will as well show you your limitations in that area fully. Fully. And the more you kind of repress your desire for sensuality and your desire for sex, to avoid these circumstances or to try to master these circumstances, something is going to be prevented from manifesting itself and it's going to be laid back to another circumstance. This is why, um, in my opinion, the whole seduction community really, it, at some point, it's just a build up towards constipation. Um, the reason being I'm saying this is, is that at a certain point, no matter how much performance you add to your play, there is a part of you that wants to perform itself unconsciously without your conscious control. And a lot of people say that uh, you have to learn how to speak in a certain way and you have to 
say things in a certain manner, by all means, learn these things. By all means, learn the tricks. But don't forget, there are tricks. Um, it's 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 the gimmicks keeps people watching. But it's always the practitioner that is being watched, regardless of how many gimmicks he he or she puts around them. Be it uh, if they want to learn seduction, if they want to learn. Uh, charismatic ways of talking and all these things which are very useful I, I have to say so um, but at the same time don't let it deprive you from expressing yourself as who you are there must be a balance where you are not always calculated where you're not always robotic where you allow yourself your vulnerabilities to be seen and you're not there to catch attention you're there to be seen once you're seen those who reserve those who deserve you will give you the attention those who don't will not and it's not from a perspective of a heartbreak or 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 a butt hurt um but it's just rather the idea that if someone is not into you they don't have to be it's such a burdening thing when we try to convince people um, to want us in a certain way or to convince uh, certain people to ask us for certain things we've all been through situations where we want to help people who don't want to be helped you know and the core of these as well is that if you don't want me maybe maybe you can need me you know and all of these things, they are a hindrance. Of course, they're valuable lessons if you're willing to learn from them. It's like sometimes when you do a mistake in a painting, you can't really clear, like, you can't really, uh, clear it up. And the reason being is, a good reason for that is that you don't throw this painting. You keep it there somewhere. So every time you are going to do the mistake... You just remember, ah, okay, I've did this mistake before and it cost me a painting or the painting could have looked much better. So next time I will remember this mistake and I will avoid it. And this way, when we match between both, the, the unconscious part of ourselves that want to reveal itself and wants to be seen without any performative aspect in fact, it is the gimmick in itself, or the attractive aspect in itself, and then you have the advertising, you know, the advertising, the spices on the, it's like the the, the spices on the sand on the, on the sandwich. It's not the spices that are important; it's the sandwich that is important. But at the same time, the spices makes it much more desirable. And and and, and it's like makeup, you know. Um, I think. Um, I've I've seen a lot of women who know how to do makeup and they are the women who do the least makeup in my opinion um, because they only show they in my opinion of course everyone has their own preference but in my opinion I always prefer uh, when someone puts on makeup that shows their beauty rather than hides who they are or hides what's not so beautiful about them I remember um, Zizek had this really interesting opinion about this topic where he says uh, there was a statistic made between who's prettier, Claudia Schiffer or Cindy Crawford and they found out that Cindy Crawford was more prettier than Claudia Schiffer and the reason being is because of her mold 
because it, though she is very beautiful, she had something that made people that she was relatable. She was she was not the 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 avoidable beauty that cannot be touched. No, she was the beauty that was real. <clears throat> the interesting another interesting aspect to this uh, to the byproduct of magic. So the by the, the third byproduct of magic, as I said, is the uh, is the what happens in the realm of the sensual desires, and what happens there is a temptation. Are you going to be yourself and use what the ma what magic gives you as even an amplifier to who you are and like give you that sense of um, we all know magicians who do a lot of solar magic and how they're the, the woo kind of penetrates the room when they're around. Um, or you're the kind of person who just does what puts all this magic as a shield and of anxiety and worry and fear and, and I don't want to deal with that person and I don't want to deal with the person I'm going to judge this person I'm going to judge that person and I'm going to hate on this person I'm going to hate on that person because I go through this a lot actually that's why I can know it in detail <laughs> um, and it's just the idea of w being willing to understand that you could use magic either as an explicit armor that prevents anybody from seeing you and you can paint this armor with all the fancy stuff uh, but but at the end of the day we all know how it feels um, we all know how it feels when we kind of are not in our bodies or when we're kissing our lover and we can't really feel them because we are just so worried that we might lose them. So we end up putting a front of the amazing Sedusa. And, and, and guess who ends up enjoying this? No one. Because it's shielded. So yeah, so this is another byproduct of magic. In general, magic, the only byproduct of magic in, in be concise is temptation. It will give you a choice and a temptation. And the choice is that you either say, ah, okay, I am, understand, it will give you a lot of temptations and you have the choice between your temptations. And the, the more you grow, the more you under, the more your temptation, you more, the more you have awareness of the temptations that are being offered and what is best for you to go through. And the temptations start not from the other, but start from you. And that starts from what you're willing to project and what are you willing to amplify and it's not about being an armored person, but rather having an armor is not a bad thing. Having a boundary is never a bad thing. But at the same time, no, have the option to take it off when you want to take it off rather than wearing it all the time. Um, so this is regarding the part about distractions. Um, and in the next section of this... I will be talking about the importance of having a deity of devotion and how this affects our magical practice. Till the next one. Alright, welcome to the next part of the, this month's episode. Um, and this one is called The Importance of Devotion in Magic. Um, devotion comes twofold in magical practice in my experience. 
The first one is, and, and we tend to seek it right off the bat, um, this devotion is usually either in, an, in another person or in a career. That's on the material level. And then you have a devotion to a certain, to a devotion to a higher deity. Most of it, there are three things that are playing in these two, for these, these reflections of devotions, because somehow what you devote to yourself in the material level actually reflects itself in the spiritual level and vice versa. Um, the, and, and, and the more you devote yourself and you balance both aspects, you end up sort of succeeding in both or at least being in a comfortable position. And I don't mean the negative association with comfort, but like in a comfortable position that could take you to other spaces, you know. Um, so the first form of the devotion, which is the material level, of course, um, a lot of us choose to go to the path of I want to devote myself to myself. Um, and of course, this is quite useful, but at the same time, it kind of makes you very self-centered and not willing and, and it kind of puts us in a space of rigidity anything out of balance puts us in a space of rigidity of limited movement um, it's really interesting how people who are very rebellious are when they I remember having conversations with a lot of people who are very rebellious before 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 marriage and before settling in quote-unquote and that when they become settled in they become the most constipated people and they become very strict as somehow they're compensating for the time they wasted, quote unquote, on fun and they didn't deserve it. So they have to kind of like reinterpret themselves in marriage or in, 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 uh, in, in a social construct that limits them from expressing themselves. Because for some reason, self-expression is haunting. And it is. Again, there is a balance between the internalization of information and the processing of it and the release of the processed information. And anything too early or too soon leads us to produce um, something that is still being chewed on. So you can always feel that it's undigested material, you know, it's still not fully digested. The... Regarding the next part of this, so so the first part of the devotion is there is a first a balance between self, between devotee and devoted to. So when you devote yourself to a, a success, uh, to a success story or to career, um, you devote yourself to that career, and you kind of need to create a balance between you and your career. This might not help you to become the first one in line or the the winner of the race. This will hold you back a bit, but this holding back is actually beneficial because you don't want to get to the top of the ladder not knowing who you are, just knowing your success and then identifying with your success and then you become a bore to be around. You know, so there's, there, is this, there is this balance between the pursuit of us and the physical manifestation or the devotion that we want to manifest into. This goes as well when we devote ourselves to a, another human being. Um, I come from an, a very interdependent culture, um, and not 
not always healthy and not always unhealthy, but it is an interdependent culture. It's not a culture based around individuality. You know, um, that comes with a good thing that you tend to understand that you, uh, your job in humanity is to kind of afford to give a form of service, and their job to you is to give you a form of service back. This is kind of like entrenched in my nature, and I think in a lot of people it's ingrained in their nature as well, uh, who come out of interdependent communities. Um, and even the power play in interdependent communities is almost different than in, in individual communities. Um, now, the idea of, 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 of the devotional or the, devo the idea of devoting yourself to serving someone else, um, it doesn't mean that you are going to, you need to have as well balance between self-care as well. The more you have to, the more you have to, you find yourself in circumstances where you are going to serve others, you need to understand that A, for you to be able to ask for what you want to be served with, you have to know what you want first. And for you to know what you want first, you have to be willing to give it to yourself. Some people, they just want a cheese sandwich in the morning, you know, to feel that they are being served or they're being cared for. And this as simple as that, you can ask another person to do this for you, especially if it's the person that you devoted yourself to. It will be very, um, very rewarding because you said you are already devoting yourself to that person and you feel paid back for your devotion. So it's not in vain. The, the con of devotion in general is that it places you in a very vulnerable and sometimes volatile situations where you are vulnerable to the person because you devote and you invest a lot in that person or you invest a lot in this success uh, whatever it wants to, you want to manifest it in every shape in any shape or form when it does not give you what you want it puts you in a position and i spoke about this in the earlier in the earlier theme uh, where we kind of can in times of being hurt by those we are vulnerable the most to we assume them as enemies because the hurt is so deep and we need to kind of avoid, not avoid, but kind of accept the circuit and de-identify from it as soon as possible because we need to understand that the hurt that we feel is because of the level of devotion that we gave to that person, not because of what the person said. This is on the three-dimensional level. Regarding spiritual or, or, or spiritual activities, why is it very important to devote yourself to a being or to a spirit or to a deity? Um, we can find this in a uh, we find this in a lot of traditions, be it the Sufi tradition where they tell you that your sheikh is the highest level and you should devote yourself completely to that sheikh, and uh, and then and it goes on and it goes on. In Buddhism as well, you have to devote yourself completely to your guru. Uh, that complete devotion does not mean that you serve them on a daily basis unless you are asked to. Some people require that. Um, I remember there's the story that Kyanze spoke about, Rinpoche Kyanze, uh, where he talked about he wanted to learn Shiva Tantrism. And uh, he saw a uh, Shiva Tantrika and he was like, I want to learn from you. He said, OK, the first three years you'll be in my house. 
And he felt that this is a very warm welcome. They told him, no, you won't learn anything about Shiva Tantrika. You will actually, or Shiva Tantra, what you are going to learn is how to, you end up serving me for three years before I teach you. And in a way, a lot of people, when they devote themselves to a path, they do not get these things. And they assume this is a kind of low status thing to do. And a big part of it is the humility that comes with it. You're being humbled down to serve your your guru or your sheikh in a way that kind of creates this link between you and them that it's not, um, he, he or she are not just a normal human being. He is someone or she is someone that you're devoted to. And this is one way. Other traditions, for example, in Thelema, they have this with the Holy Guardian Angel. In um, in other many other traditions, they have the spirit guide in whatever name they have them, um, and you're supposed to the first thing, the first thing in any big tradition or a very well rooted tradition is they tell you find your guru. They don't um, be it if it's a spirit guru or if it is a a human in human form. They tell you, drop everything that you have. If you're interested in a tradition, go to your guru in that tradition and learn from them. And this is so crucially important because it goes to two different, two, two ways. If the tradition is centered around the communication between human and spirit, um, there could be at the beginning of the process a magician or a priestess or or, or whatever, a medium... And that medium connects you with that spirit. A lot of us end up doing is going to tarot readers and these tarot readers channel these spirits to them. Uh, in a certain amount of time, this is a good replacement. But it shouldn't be a long-term replacement because at some point you'll need to pick up your tarot deck and you'll need to understand what the spirit is telling you regardless of the meaning of the card. Um, sometimes actually in my experience spirits actually talk to you within pictures of the card rather than the meaning of the card itself or the interpretation of the card itself um, so this is essentially the 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 idea one of the ideas uh, once and once you've got your foot in the door and you've asked enough tarot readers to channel your spirits for you it's it kind of gets you in this process of understanding that it's an external being yet it's so viscerally ingrained in you that you can always hear that spirit in your thought and they kind of vocalize themselves in thoughts and they vocalize themselves in our actions and they vocalize themselves in our circumstances and it takes a level of education uh, a very long-term education, in my experience, um, to be able actually to see something that is being being told to you. This is why a magician must surround themselves with other tarot readers other than themselves, and to have someone they would constantly go to out of, like, there's even you have to understand that the medium is not a uh, is not perfect. In fact, he's very imperfect or she is very imperfect. In fact, they can interpret a lot of messages that you're receiving based on their own, uh, their own e ego and they're based on their own circumstances. And in again, 
these mistakes help you kind of formulate your opinion and your kind of sensitivity to the signature of the spirit or of devotion that you've devoted sort of your magical uh, your magical practice to. And essentially what you do is, is that you make sure that with this magical practice is always devoted to that being. Any other offering to any other spirit, this being comes first and then the other spirit. And this idea can help you a lot in understanding how hierarchy works. It's not really who's the boss. It's who we are devoted to that counts. I've seen so many people sacrifice a lot of people who seemed very important to them when someone, when an object of devotion comes into their lives. Uh, I'm one of them. I've seen a lot of people who have this happen to them. And this is another thing that we should, as magician, really bear witness to and kind of see ourselves when we go through that. A lot of people get seduced easily by spirits. I am one of them uh, up until recently. And the idea of being seduced by other spirits is that you already have a being of devotion that you've worked with. You realize that maybe you had a lot of lifetimes with that being or you had a lot of ventures with that being in this lifetime without you even noticing that they're there in the first place and then suddenly they revealed themselves to you. You know, The idea here is that when you devote yourself to that being and, and you are, recognize their role in your life and you recognize their role in your past lives, it kind of makes the journey in the spirit realm much easier. It no longer is, you're no longer food for spirits. You're no longer an easy target. You're no longer someone who, and, and I'm not saying that this, 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 let me continue now. I don't want to go into a tangent. What I'm saying is that you're no longer food. You realize that these spirits in general, they are spirit guides. They are teachers. They want to teach you. They want to help you. But at the same time, they're hungry. They get hungry. They're not always hungry. They get hungry. And if they get hungry, um, and they, they don't really like, if there's an, it's not, how can I say this? To not become opinionated about this topic, what I would say is, you have to understand that not every spirit you deal with in the spirit realm is your friend. And the sooner you establish a backbone in the spirit realm by two things, your own personal authority and self-care. And second, your devotion to a higher being that helps you to evolve as they help themselves to evolve will take you places. Uh, and it will help you to see what is actually a connection and what is not a connection, what is, what is a pretending spirit and what is not a pretending spirit. And all of these things, you... I have read, for example, Alistair Crowley's method is you test the spirit, you ask it about something. And I feel that is ridiculous because <laughs> honestly, if a spirit can, can read your mind and be in your thoughts, most probably if you try to test it with something, it's going to pick up on that test. And I'll be like, ah, I'm testing you. How are you testing me? I'm, I'm putting a key behind my back. Tell me the color of the key. And be like, yeah, well, motherfucker, I can hear your thoughts. I can read through them. So it's kind of redundant. Mm, so I feel honestly these things can only be taught by spirits themselves. They do not. Some humans, like I mean, 
I mean, um, if if they belong to a very very uh, strong tradition and they are very strong uh, magician magical practitioners, maybe they can tell because they have been told by other spirits. These things you don't learn from other human beings. These things you learn from other spirits. In my experience, uh, and you don't. And the thing is. The thing is, when it comes to learning from spirits, a lot of people presume that it's a, a, a spirit sitting in front of you with a whiteboard and telling you do this and do that. No, it kind of, it goes in many ways. Part of it could be just intention without even thinking. Like, you know, the, the, the non-doing that, that Dzogchen traditionals, uh, tr- practitioners talk about is that it's essentially, it's not about doing and not doing. It's about non-doing. And non-doing is when you do something spontaneously. In the sense of even like, as I talked earlier about chaos ritual, he talks a lot about that, which is kind of how can you encourage the spontaneous? This is a paradox that we have to pursue in magic a lot, which is the idea that, for example, instead of kind of, I want to give this to get that, Another thing arises is I want to do this, but I don't know why that I really want to do this. It's that kind of thing that the, the, the doings that you don't have a, um, a, an explanation for at the time they arise. And of course, by practice, we get to know uh, we, we, we kind of tune in. It depends on the, our karma because these doings are very karmic. Um, you could do something that is a non-doing that is very destructive. And that is because this is what you emanate. And this is why a big part of magic in general and what comes with devotion to a certain being is that it tells you quite right off the bat about your bullshit. I think the more we kind of put ourselves, the more we deal with beings, I've done this mistake before. Uh, if you if you try to gather around beings from old traditions without them having a common link this can lead to a sort of a gap that you can fill with your own shadow content. Let's say, for example, in a tradition like Buddhism, um, their view that there is no creator God because there is no evidence for that full stop. The interpretation that came afterwards is, 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 and I've heard it from a lot of uh, Buddhists, not a lot of Buddhists, some Buddhists, and they have this idea that the creator God Yahweh is 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 uh, is the subject of topic of what Buddhists talk about, or the story that came about Buddha when he met 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 a creator God and told him he did not create it, he found yourself in it. And essentially, now we put two traditions that have nothing to do with each other, from different continents with different temperaments, and we try to put them at the same sentence. So what will you fill the sentence with if there is no words to fill the sentence? Your own shadow contact, content. And this shadow content comes from the fact that you might have daddy issues, so you perceive the god Yahweh as an evil deity. And then you put these daddy issues to fill the sentence. And it goes on and on and on and on. This is but one example. Am I saying that this is shadow contact? Maybe not. Maybe actually Buddhists say that. Or maybe coincidentally, because this is my shadow content, I have daddy issues, and I'll tend to project them on my god of devotion. I'm not saying Yahweh is my god of devotion, but you get the gist of it. 
And if you are practicing with one or more tradition, because now with chaos magic being in the scene bigger than ever before, in my opinion, or my assumption, a lot of us go into different forms of tradition and try to link them up. And that if, if we don't link them up, it prevents us from integrating them. And the idea here, of course, this is something we saw in a lot of Buddhists when they go to a certain country, they turn some of the deities into bodhisattvas. They've, it has been done. Um, Tara was there before Buddhism. Um, um, not before Buddhism, but it, it, Tara was worshipped by non-Buddhists before Buddha. Like, there were non-Buddhists who worshipped Tara. Um... And at the same time, we can see this in as well. Um, Kurkula, for example, Kurkula as well. She was worshipped by the Bond tradition, I think, before they entered Buddhism or before Buddhism kind of merged with the Bond tradition. And the idea here is that whether a being wants to become initiated into the other tradition that you are practicing, that's completely up to the being, not up to you. And at some point, some beings will not move with you to protect you in the tradition that you are jumping into. That is because they are not interested and you should not, you should not become a Jehovah Witness with human beings. And if it doesn't work out, try to be a Jehovah Witness with, with spirits because that's going to bite you up in the ass. So, essentially, what you do is you just kind of accept that you are moving from one tradition to the other, and you're going to go back to your to the other tradition, and you have to kind of understand that these rules do not apply here, and these rules apply here. In this way, a lot of people presume, not a lot of people, some people have this opinion that this can cause a bit of insanity or derangement. And I think the point here is this derangement comes from the idea of filling up gaps with shadow material and assuming that this shadow material is the object of devotion. And, and thus, if you enter a tradition, make sure to have a guide in it. Um, again, if it's a spiritual tradition that deals specifically with spirits, you jump in and you kind of wait do not do the mistake of practicing magic with the, with this tradition until this tradition has opened its door for you you don't go and ask for uh, i've seen people a lot of people do that and i not a lot of people i've seen people do that and i was one of them is the idea for example you want to work with papalegba okay before you even know that papalegba exists you saw it on some Tinder, uh, not Tinder, sorry. You saw it on, on some picture on Instagram that Papa Legba exists. So you presume that, uh, that okay, this is a way opener. So instead of I'm um, going to introduce myself to that way opener, I'm going to give him offerings and write down a request in that offering. Um, the idea here, of course, he he's a beneficent being. So he can look at the offering. And, okay, cool. I'll get you what you want. In my experience with Papa Legba, he's not the kind of being that you work with once and put him aside. If you work with him once, 
you'll end up working with him twice and three times or four times, even your whole lifetime. Even if you just give him an offering uh, on uh, just one time, uh, one time every week on Mondays, this could do. And it's it's and you don't ask them every time you give them something. You don't ask them for something. The deities that are that work with devotion, you don't ask them over every time you give them something. In my opinion. And the idea here is that they're not your servants, they are your teachers. And once you establish this sensitivity that you're dealing with a teaching spirit and a guiding spirit that will give you gifts every now and then, and not everything you want you will receive by magic, it kind of gives you this sense that, oh, I have to work my tits off to get what I want sometimes. And there's nothing wrong with that. It breaks down the whole arrogance that comes with magic that if I do a sigil, uh, it will manifest. What does this now? How does this leave us in sigil magic and 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 personal magic? Because we end up sometimes. I have this question a lot actually, which is if I am practicing magic and I'm doing a lot of devotion magic, can I still do will uh, willful magic where I? Uh, just put my will into something and it will manifest? And the answer, quite simply, is yes and no. It's neither yes, neither no. It's both. Because at the moment you devote yourself to a certain being, all of your magic is not sort of under their name. It is kind of. Um, like when everybody, when a spirit comes to talk to you, it will go first to that spirit, you know, it's not go to that spirit first, but it will know you are, you're claimed by that being, you're sort of their son and their daughter, you know, um, and this idea is that, oh, okay, he belongs to that being, so I will go to that being first out of respect, because who are you in the spirit realm in comparison to these spirits? And a lot of people would, would think I'm being insulting. I'm not. I'm just being realistic. A spirit that has lived before this earth and came to this earth, quite possibly, if you tell me that you remember all your lifetimes and you tell me that you already have the power that this being has, then we can have another conversation Conversation and say, uh, okay, uh, I am... The this the 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 um then I am an equal, but it's not it's it, there is a bit of equality of course that the spirit, the teacher is using you as not using you is is working with you, for them to evolve too. But their what they evolve in is completely different what you need to evolve in, and this is very important to understand. Um. So I think this is this is ends the talk regarding the devotion part, and I think this is it for this month's episode. I hope you really enjoyed it, and um, if you want us to coach you uh, through tarot, I don't offer coaching right now in in spiritism or working with spirits or any of this because honestly I feel that I'm not there yet by a long shot, to be able to give coaching in, in, in spirituality in that sense. However, I offer tarot readings, uh, I offer consultations, 
However, my consultations are mainly life coaching. My consultations are not in the spirit realm. Uh, my consultation is how to deal with things in the three-dimensional level. Or if you want to connect with your spirit, your personal spirit, I might be able to help you with that, but I'm not a medium. Like, I'm not a medium. I'm more of a tarot reader. And if you had one of my services before, you know what, I'm, what I can do. Uh, regarding... So this is for that. Another thing... And I apologize for the... Uh, for the hesitant advertising. Um, I'm not so comfortable with advertising for myself, to be honest. Um, the last thing that I want to advertise for is that we have a book that came out a while ago. It's called 30 Days of Confidence. Uh, please read it. You'll find it on kindleamazon.de. You'll find it in the German Amazon and German Kindle. And if you're interested to read it, but you can't find it, you can always contact me and I can, you can basically send me the money and I can send you the book. Oh, I don't think I can do that. I think I, the publishers would, would snap at this. So no. So just, just go to Kindle and uh, you'll find my book there, 30 Days of Confidence by Idrisa Sinusi. And uh, till then, may chaos be your authority.